Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, June 28th, hmm. 2020. Okay. Right? Yeah, sure. We're coming up on the 4th of July. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I How are we so. going to do that, 4th of July? I don't know. I mean, usually we're in big crowds, right? Not, not, not you and I. Whoa, come on. You go to the beach. You go to some fireworks. Uh, you're in a, a crowd, a huge crowd. Uh, yeah, so this will be kind of the antithesis of that. Yeah. You know, in uh, did you hear in New York they're gonna Macy's going to do fireworks all over the place, and not tell anybody when they're going to happen. Right. That's way. That's the way you keep the so crowds down. So it really sneaks up. Yeah. The thing is, people have already jumped the gun. There are fireworks going off every night in right. New York, yeah. and people are kind of sick of fireworks. Right. Um, they can't sleep at night. Yeah. People are getting injured. Fireworks are coming in Listen, the window. That was a real problem. When we lived on 100th Street, uh, the fireworks that were associated with 4th of July would go on until like 1 in the morning, 2 right, in the morning, let's not 3 in the morning. It, yeah, it was a headache. Yeah, it was, it was a headache. It was annoying. And we, we mentioned it to the police once, and they said, yeah, what are we going to do about that? And I kind of sympathized with them. What are they going to do? So uh, they're proving that point now. Right. Uh, he winked to their approach. The... Uh, <laughs> So we've here's what we've done. We've been to to restaurants. We went to uh, two different restaurants this we week. We jumped on it. We jumped on it. We finally <laughs> Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Yeah, and in our opening up the restaurants. In our responsible approach, we to cover everything. We went once in Pennsylvania and then once in uh, New Jersey. So we've covered the globe. And uh, it, look, there've been a lot of articles about that. There's a I'll give the Times credit for the best headline. Their headline is Welcome to Applebee's. Can I get you started, sorted with some disinfectant? Uh, that's a pretty good headline. Uh, the rest of the article is not interesting. Uh, and then Pete Wells had an article in the Times in a restaurant review during the week. And that was, uh, you know, his approach was, was noteworthy. And which he spoke generally about outdoor dining, which is what they're doing in New York and what we experienced in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And when it came time to the restaurant review, he said, look, I'm just not going to do a review. Because mm-hmm. I, it, it, you know, I, there's some pluses, some minuses, but I'm not going to say anything negative. Everybody needs a hand. I'm just thrilled and excited to be outside. You know, that's it. And eating. And yeah. eating. And that's it. Yeah. And, and that's a good approach to take, I think, don't you? Right. Right. Although we did have very good meals. and uh, One better than the other. Yeah. But uh, please. Um, we just, uh, of course, since it's outdoor dining. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. indoor dining at reduced capacity is starting up but soon. We haven't done that. Um, it makes you a little nervous because it's that time of year when uh, thunderstorms can crop up oh, we had good at any moment. We had good weather. But we lucked out. Yeah. Uh, we, were... we had a beautiful evening on a Thursday night and it was uh, quiet and it's a pastoral spot in Pennsylvania. And it really could have been nicer than what they did. That was smart. But they sort of recalibrated the menu a little bit. To have a little bit fancier dishes, but a little bit simpler, and uh, you know, I think under these circumstances, perhaps simpler is better. And that was it was fine. It was great. Yeah. And uh, then the next night we were in Princeton. Uh, Princeton with, was happy. Yeah, in that, Princeton they have um, narrow Witherspoon Street so that uh, restaurants can put some right. outdoor dining, like almost in right. the street. And there were tons and, of people. And in there Princeton were tons of walking people. around. Um, yeah, it would have, and, would have horrified some, I suppose, but uh, that's the way it was. But it was uh, nice to be around people. Yes. And I would say I didn't feel infringed on no, no. health-wise no. at any point. Yeah. There was still plenty of room for everyone. Yeah. Um, but, and you, and um, you couldn't get into these restaurants which had the outdoor dining. 
uh, you had to have a reservation, which we did. You, many people came up and said, this is great. Can I sit outside? They said no. <laughs> right. uh, so because they have lesser capacity and they're filling it. But it was really nice to sit down and let other people do all the work. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, um, well, you would feel we, that more than I. And also, we could all sit down and uh, order whatever we wanted. We didn't have to oh, eat yeah, whatever listen, Tamsin listen. prepared. Yeah. Okay. Look, look. So you had choices. It was. Um, you had. It was very relaxation. It was very nice. Uh, yeah. Look, I'll just say this. We, we can argue the politics of this one way or another. The food's better at home. The food that you make is better than what we got at these restaurants. In general, well, the we get better at restaurants. Right. No, no, I'm not talking about the price. I'm yes, saying, you the, are. No, I'm Come not. On. The food is much better. <laughs> but, but uh, it is nice to, for everyone to be relaxed and uh, to have a drink and uh, look around. Sure. And, and see uh, and see and talk yeah, to yeah, other people. It. I'm not saying we're not going to go out. It's, yeah. it's, it's fine. Uh, so uh, it, it was good to get out. Yes, we have dipped our toes into the reentry. Right. And so far, so good. So far, so good. So we, we, we're, we're very lucky. We live in a beautiful, yeah, touristic yeah, area, yeah. really. I mean, yes. That, 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 so, that's, that, and we were talking about that on Thursday night with Armand. Yeah. And I think he said, look, we're in a bubble in Bucks County. It's so fantastic here. So Yeah. It's true. Um, here's something that's a little bit of an issue. Ballpark peanuts. And I'm learning a lot, uh, you know, in the pandemic with all the economic fallout. It takes you into areas that you didn't know about. There's such a thing as ballpark peanut, peanuts. It's a particular type of peanut. It's called the Virginia. The Vir- Virginia peanut. Oh, really? Yes, it's got a certain How shape. How is it different It's from... got a certain quality of shell. It's, uh, you know, it's a, there's something to opening it, but it's not that tough to open. It's got great flavor. Uh, it's a special kind of peanut. Most peanuts don't make that grade. Uh, 80% of them don't make that grade. And you know what happens to those peanuts that don't make the grade, generally speaking? They're ground down into peanut butter. That's where most peanuts end up. But when we up. buy roasted peanuts in the shell those in are the grocery peanuts. store, those are ballpark peanuts. Those are ballpark peanuts. peanuts. Okay. Uh, so, um, but most of the 2.3 million pounds of in-shell peanuts consumed during a typical baseball season are, quote, languishing in cold storage, waiting like the fans for an opening day at the park that is unlikely to come. They were supposed to be sold for 4 or $5 a bag, it's not going to happen uh, unless baseball gets going, which is a whole different subject, and well, it's highly doubtful. I feel bad for the peanut guys, but I feel happy for myself. The price of peanut butter is going to plummet. Uh, yeah. Won't that be great? Well, the price of peanut butter won't plummet because, again, most— Come on. This, the Virginia this. peanuts only accounted for a But you can 20%. take them. You can repurpose them. All right. Let me, let me reorient you, okay? Okay. They're first, languishing first of all, in storage. Let's, let's be clear. You should feel bad about it. And we're all into comfort food. What greater comfort food is there than PB and J? All right, let's take things one at a time because you obviously haven't been studying this. Uh, point one is that um, the the people who are in trouble are not the people who grow the peanuts; it's the people who roast the peanuts because all the contracts to sell the peanuts were done before all this happened. So it's the roasters who are holding the peanuts. The right. peanut growers are okay. All right, that's number one. Roast and, them and grind them. And they, they then they talk to this guy Tom Nolan. And his quote is, we're basically left holding the peanuts. Now, I'm saying to myself, the guy couldn't say we're left holding the bag. He couldn't come up with that. He's left holding the peanuts. That's a little weak on his part. But in any event, what are you going to do with those special peanuts? And and uh, and then they tell, tell the whole story, by the way, of how, how uh, ballpark peanuts came to be, how peanuts were associated with, with baseball. And it goes back to Harry Stevens. 
who actually came up with this great slogan. He used to sell scorecards. Here's his slogan. You ready for this? You can't tell the players without a scorecard. How's that for a slogan? Right. That's sold a lot of scorecards. And he became the peanut guy because he was in the scorecard business and he started selling peanuts along with him. Okay, you're not, that's not that interesting. Well, I, just, I thought it was going to relate to peanuts. But How about it just this? Tells me about Take Me Out cards. to the Ball Game, which famously associated uh, peanuts with uh, baseball, was written in 1908. goes back that far. Written while this guy was taking the subway uh, past the Polo Grounds. Oh, really? Isn't that something? So I got scored there. Um, but uh, these people, I'm, I won't go into detail, but the guys in the You peanut, already have. <laughs> the guys in the article... The peanut people yeah. are crying at the prospect of the Virginia peanuts being uh, ground down in the peanut butter. They say, I would liken that to using a really fine beef tenderloin to make ground beef. You can do it. And it would make great peanut butter, but it would be a great economic loss. No one wants to grind well, these peanuts. it's better peanuts. than throwing them out. I tell you, you want to know funny why people are consuming so many peanuts and peanut butter now more than they normally do outside of the ballpark? Here's something you never thought about. I didn't, at least. It's kids. And you know why they're eating more peanuts? Because they're not going to school. Right. And because in school they can't have peanuts because of the peanut allergies. Oh, okay. But at home, no one's got peanut allergies. There are very but, few people. Well, yeah. Okay. So you know if someone does. And okay. you, uh, yeah. All right. So there might go. Okay. I, I won't settle all I have to say on that. I'm done. Done. All right. So I have uh, an interesting... Um, well, we'll see. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's not museum, but it is art. Ah, yes. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's museum. It's a ding, it's ding, not, ding. All right. Museum update. Yes. Um, actually, uh, so as we know, there's been a lot of controversy about monumental sculptures mm-hmm. in the past uh, month or so. And the latest one being held up to scrutiny is a sculpture of Theodore Roosevelt at the entrance to the American Museum of Natural History. So there's an article about that uh, in the New York Times by Holland Carter, uh, art critic to New York to the New York Times, mm-hmm. and it's basically you know, and it has a couple of different headlines. One is seeing monuments in a new day's light. Basically, he's talking about monuments as a way to teach. The problem with the um, Roosevelt statue is not, uh, you know, contrasting that to the, you know, statues of the Confederate heroes uh, in Richmond or elsewhere. It's not about the guy. He is complex. You know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, questionable aspects of his personality. But in this case, it's really the optics of the sculpture itself. Sculpture was done in 1940 by James Earl Frazier. Okay, 24 feet high, um, massive equestrian sculpture, Teddy sitting on a horse in command, alert, forward thinking, you know, ready to do what he's got to do. And below him, okay, are, he is flanked by a Native American and an African American mm-hmm. dressed uh, somewhat in native clothing. Right. Is it okay. an African American or Af- an African? African. Yeah. I should say African. It's yeah. not clear because, right. to some extent, the explanation mm-hmm. is that uh, it, these are allegorical figures right. representing uh, Africa and 
America. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the problem is this, uh, you know, it, it seems to be a picture of white superiority. Okay, you have the white man way up here, and uh, the African and uh, Native American way down below. They are both carrying rifles, but uh, we we still don't understand who they are. Okay, right. mm-hmm. are they gun bearers? Are they the security detail? We don't know. Okay, and uh, there's not a good explanation. Uh, there is a quote by somebody saying the the artist says that. Um, they really uh, express um, Roosevelt's friendliness to all races. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but uh, well, really, you, you you pointed out to me that it's not even the artist quote that counts. These are commissioned works. A monumental sculpture like right. this is commissioned by someone, some committee. Right. Okay. The artist is generally told what will be depicted. Right. Uh, in fact, you know, probably given some kind of program of how to do that. It's not an expression of the artist's right. belief or vision of what he's doing. He's paid to uh, and, right. represent these people. Well, that was news to me. You also pointed out to me that it's not considered a great sculpture. No, I mean, uh, nobody, you know, have you ever heard of James Earl Fraser? Well, no, but I don't know what no. that... Well, you know some of his work. Do I? Yes. Actually, he uh, designed the Buffalo Nickel. Oh. Remember when we all used to co- collect oh, Buffalo Nickels? Oh, yeah. And, and he's done other works, including one of his early works was actually a tribute to um, the Native American. It's, uh, uh, what it, was it called? Uh, End of the Trail or something like that. Um, and it was... It did kind of embody an, an image of pushing mm-hmm. the Native Americans out of the country mm-hmm. into the Pacific uh, Ocean. And he's done, for people around here, they would know uh, the massive Ben Franklin uh, sculpture in the mm-hmm. Franklin Institute. Okay, yeah, right. So he's, he's just not a household word, right. is what I would say. And uh, he did everything in a neoclassical style, um, which... Not everybody's cup of tea, not always in fashion, but it looks good in front of neoclassical buildings where most of these sculptures are. Anyway, Cotter uh, writes a a persuasive argument that, you know, it shouldn't be in front. It shouldn't be the uh, image that greets people to a natural history museum, Mm -hmm. okay? But it should be somewhere in the museum representing... um, how does he put it? As an outsized ethnological specimen, the product of a specific era and culture, now subject to critical evaluation in, you know, a different era and culture. Okay, so uh, that I have to say I pretty much uh, agree with, okay? I am not for destroying art, okay? I'm not for judgments about what is great and what is little and destroying it. Um... Last time somebody seriously did that, Hitler. Remember all the art he destroyed, mm-hmm. calling it degenerate right. art, right. okay? Um, so let's not go down that path. Uh, brings up, Cotter brings up another um, interesting aspect, though, that there are some monuments that may be problematic in their imagery, but they happen to be great works. They happen to re- represent um, the output of a more significant artist. And case in point is um, the memorial to Robert Gould Shaw 
in Boston on the Boston mm-hmm. Commons. Uh, you've probably walked by it, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, it's a memorial to Robert Goulchaw and the Massachusetts Fifty Fourth uh, Regiment. And uh, this was done by Augustus St. Gaudens in 1897. Okay, Shaw was um, uh, the leader of uh, an all-black volunteer Union Army brigade. Okay, that marched to South Carolina and died. Many in a battle. Many, uh, much of the uh, regiment died, including Shaw himself. He was buried in a mass grave with his soldiers, okay? And uh, this sculpture, it's a relief bronze, and uh, it's it's pretty magnificent, okay? So, you know, on a case-by-case basis, you're gonna look at these monuments and you're gonna have to decide, um, you know, what is it they are saying? Do we um, treat this in an ethnological way or do we also treat it as, you know, um, an artistic uh, um, production? The minute I was reading about this, it reminded me of another sculptor, mm-hmm. okay? Um, because uh, another sculptor who depicted uh, Robert Gould Shaw in the 19th century uh, was Edmonia Lewis. Okay, I don't even know if I'm saying her name right, um, but she did a bust of Robert Gould Shaw. Uh, she was living in Boston at the time. She was being supported by abolitionists, uh, and uh, she earned enough money to kickstart her sculpture career. She was a fascinating woman. She was also the first uh, professional African-American sculptor in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. She has a fascinating, crazy history. Her father was, uh, um, how should I say that? Afro-Haitian. Her mother was uh, Native American. Uh, I can't even say this. Um, Mrs. Aqua Ojibwe, I um, apologize for that, and African-American. Um, both of her parents die before she is nine years old, mm-hmm. and uh, she's raised by aunts. Uh, she's living up in, in Niagara Falls. They're making baskets and moccasins for tourists. Mm-hmm. Her, the name she uses is Wildfire. Her half-brother is uh, called Sunshine. He's a little bit older. He becomes a um, barber. But anyway, somehow she goes to school. She goes to Oberlin College. There's a crazy scandal there involving whether she might have poisoned some fellow students. And she goes from there, ends up in Boston, and uh, she's being supported by the abolitionists. Mm -hmm. And she raises this money that enables her to go to Rome. She wants to go to Rome. She wants to go to Italy. um, Because there she can be an artist. And that's what happens, right? Yeah. In Boston, she's the darling of the abolitionists. They're supporting her as a human rights endeavor kind of thing, human Mm. interest. Mm. She goes to Rome. She, uh, you know, develops a great uh, studio and uh, she has an amazing career for the time as a woman, as a black woman. She also 
sculpts her own marble. What you may not realize is a lot of sculptors don't. They do the clay um, model, model yeah. or the plaster cast model, mm. and then fabricators take over, uh, whether it's bronze or marble or whatever. Mm. She learned to sculpt, and she created her own marble sculptures. One of the most famous is Forever Free, done in 1867. It represents... Uh, um, the uh, emancipation of black people to black man and uh, woman. Mm -hmm. And that has some con con uh, controversial interpretations as well. But she has a, a, a significant career. She ends up, she's commissioned by Ulysses S. Grant to do his portrait mm -hmm. at a certain point. She ends up, uh, she's also a neoclassical um, style artist. That goes out of style. Um, you know, her popularity wanes and she moves to England and dies in London. But uh, a crazy, fascinating life. There's much more to her. I, I'm only uh, um, giving you a taste. Okay. Um, but, uh, it, you know, interesting that uh, the, some of these discussions are starting other conversations that are even more uh, fascinating. Hmm. Uh, okay, so this is uh, not a left turn. Uh, yeah, you know, I think we talked about this a long time ago. Uh, I certainly remember reading about it a long time ago, uh, two months ago, two and a half months ago. Right. And that is that uh, there's the possibility of uh, using as a vaccination against COVID-19 the uh, polio vaccine, which sounds uh, crazy. Crazy. Sounds crazy. But the... But yeah. Well, you explain this to me. You can the polio vaccine will actually protect you yeah. from other stuff. Yeah. It, yes, it, it protects you against other viruses, but uh, not for long, not uh, for a it, lifetime. Where they it, don't. Know. It's not clear. It's not clear. But at the very least, they figure for a couple of months or something like that. Uh, and um, and uh, for that reason, there is some serious advocacy for giving people the uh, polio vaccine. In particular, we're talking about the Sabin vaccine and. So what happens is people are digging into this now and they're telling a story again of how we came up with the polio vaccine. And what you had was um, the Sabin vaccine used a live virus. Uh, the Salk vaccine, which is even better known before, did not use a live virus, but it was done by injection. Uh, and there was some concern about using the live virus, even though the Sabin vaccine was cheaper and it was in a sugar cube it was easy to do it and it you was remember, scary injecting right lime. but you remember taking the Sabin vaccine as do i yeah so i'm saying to myself gee but what's the controversy we all took the Sabin vaccine but here's what happened it turns out that uh, the u.s couldn't get over the hump on this but soviet union could couldn't get off the schneid uh no off the schneid means something a little bit different but uh <laughs> off the schneid just means you haven't scored a run yet uh, they couldn't oh. get, get going okay but in any event, um, uh, so here's what happened. It all comes back to this formula. Uh, I'm sorry, this family. Uh, there are these two doctors who are married in, in Russia. I'll try to get the names right. Uh, Dr. Marina uh, Voroshilova and Dr. Mikhail uh, Shumakov. And uh, they're big advocates of the live virus vaccine, the Sabin-like vaccine. And uh, unlike uh, their, their colleagues in the United States of America, they have a little more freedom to experiment, apparently. They don't have so many rules and regulations. So who do they try it out on? They try it out on their kids. 
So U.S. won't use it. Life, Russia life says, is cheap in, in Russia. Is that what we're learning? They don't have a lot of rules. Oh my God. So they actually go and they give it to all their kids. And they do extremely well with it. And, well, thank goodness. And, uh, yeah, so there are two things that come out of it. Not only do they do well with it, it, it kills, uh, it, it immunizes them against uh, polio. But the mother notices immediately it immunizes them against everything else. And she ends up giving it to the kids every year to knock out all the viruses they might get. So she's on to this from the very beginning. Okay. In, in the late 1950s. That's number one. But here's the best part. Number two... Uh, all the kids, uh, you know, the, the two doctors I mentioned were, were called uh, vir- virologists. All the kids become virologists. All the kids on whom this was, who were subject to the experiments, become virologists and become virologists who actually do this technique, test things on themselves. They say it's the best way to do it. Okay. <laughs> and not only that, but they're all quite prominent. I'm not going to read all their names and all the jobs they have. I'll just focus on one of them, whose name is Dr. Konstantin uh, Shumakov. Uh, and guess what he is? He's the Associate Director of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Office of Vaccine, Vaccine Research and Review. He's in the U.S. And okay. he's saying, yeah, this stuff is great. You don't have to go crazy with it. You can use it on your kids as far as I'm concerned. I'm one of those kids. And uh, he was asked now was if, if he... Uh, approves of his parents' experiment. And he said, yeah, it was the right thing to do. Now there would be questions like, did you get permission from the ethics committee? We didn't worry about that. And it did a whole lot of good. Well, the guy who's leading the charge for this is a guy named Gallo, who's mentioned in the article, Dr. Robert Gallo, and followed up the next day in a letter to the editor published in the New York Times saying this is exactly what we should be doing. We should be distributing the Sabin vaccine to people. It costs two cents to administer, and uh, let's go. And I'm in. Was, I'm in. He was starting to do it. So we should definitely take it, right? Uh, well, I don't know. There's no, but I mean... It's if being it, held up. It's being held up by some group in the United States. But I mean, it would, it would protect us from a lot of stuff. That's what they say. That's what they say. You know what the concern is they're, they're looking into now? Whether having all this uh, live vaccine in, in people's systems will find its way into the wastewater and create uh, polio virus. And oh, that polio. would make a great movie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The wheels are turning. Well, that, that's where they are with this now. But uh, yeah, I think you're going to hear more about this. Okay. Speaking of movies. Yes, go ahead. Um, so we've been watching, uh, we, we've been hungering for theater. Yeah. And uh, we've tried watching things on the somewhat small screen. Yeah, we've done it. Right? right. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't think we watched Kinky Boots. Oh, the, we the watched play. A, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, that was very mediocre. A film of Kinky Boots, yeah, yeah, the Broadway tell musical. You the truth, honey. That would be mediocre in person too. Uh, but even so, it wasn't yeah. great quality. Right. right. Um, actually, uh, my one success yeah. was Mark. Um, Turned me on to the Met Opera. How'd you like that? Uh, I, streaming. Did, I did not watch that. Uh, I watched uh, most of Akhenaten by Philip Glass. Yeah. And it was done very well. Yeah? Yes. Yes. It was, I thought it was quite excellent. Well, we have a So I, I don't know what the difference is. We but. have a ton of opera on, on the PBS channel stuff that we got. So right. We go well, that. the way the Met was doing it was they would stream it for 24 hours or 23 yeah, hours. Right, right. And uh, then they had a whole program. Mm-hmm. And there were different productions from, you know, different years. Maybe some of the, uh, some are better than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, so that was pretty good. And now, uh, July 3rd, mm-hmm. 
Hamilton mm. will be streamed yeah. by Disney Plus. And uh, so that's fun. It's always fun to see Hamilton. Uh, I wouldn't mind uh, seeing it. Uh, You've in, already in seen film. it twice. Dude. I've seen it twice live yeah. and both unforgettable and quite different because the first time oh, was right. at the the little cute public theater. And next on Broadway. And then next on Broadway. And there were some changes. They, were, okay? they weren't quite different, but they, yeah. They were quite different. Yeah. The first, you know, the first time you didn't like it that much and the second time you did. So it must have been different. Uh, I know. Okay. Same cast. I, uh, I, no, I always yeah. liked it. I always anyway. Liked it. Anyway, um, before that original cast left, they made a film. Yeah. Now, it's not like, uh, you know, somebody just set up a couple of cameras, mm-hmm. uh, like they do at a water polo game. <laughs> right. But uh, it, um, they actually put some thought into yeah. uh, all the camera action, etc. And, and nonetheless, it cost less than $10 million to make that film. Really? Yes. Really? really? <laughs> and so, what but bargain. they managed to do that, you know, with the um, resources they had available. Right. And then they shopped it around and uh, they couldn't find quite the perfect buyer. Yeah. And then uh, recently, um, they talked uh, they Disney price. Plus. They didn't get it. their price, but now they got their yeah. price. So now 75 out. million buckos. Good for them. And it only cost 10 million to make. Exactly. I don't even know how you run up 10 million. I, you know, just the headline is the 75 filming. million. Okay, so anyway, so that will be exciting, and I'm glad to hear that even the original cast is getting a piece of the action uh, from that, um, because that was kind of a landmark thing, you know, the idea that a cast, you know, cast members can help um, develop, originate. It's a workshop for a long time. Well, but it's not just that they flesh out the character. They make the character come alive, and subsequent uh, actors and actresses... Uh, kind of repeat their performance or imitate it or, you know, maybe enhance it a little bit. But uh, so, you know, they're part of the creation. So they should get a piece of the pie, I think. Anyway, Hamilton, July 3rd, is going to start streaming and you can watch it. As many times as you I think like. that's Disney Channel. As many as you need. Yeah. I, you Disney know, Plus. Oh, excuse me. So, uh... And there's all these pluses now. Yeah. So you show They're never included on your original. Yeah, right. So, so bummer. Showed, we, we have it. You showed me uh, the article. There was a follow-up. We talked about this a few weeks ago, about uh, unforgettable... Broadway shows or moments in Broadway shows. Moments from live theater. Yes. Live moments. Just moments. So these are like letters people write in. And it's interesting to see what people focused on. And we had... uh, Particular actors and actresses. Yeah, I mean... I don't know if it's worth going down this list. I'm sure it's not, as a matter of fact. There were surprising ones. John Malkovich? Well, comes up several times. Comes up twice, and uh, that's not a surprise at all, right? It's John really? Malkovich. I, I don't know. He it's seems... John Malkovich, honey. But he, uh, yeah, come on, John Malkovich. No surprise there. What uh, what I thought was interesting, and this maybe I just feel this is uh, validation, because out of the, off the top of my head, I mentioned uh, the invention of love, and you agree with me. And sure enough, someone says Robert Sean Leonard. In the invention of love, and I only—it's only worth mentioning because that's a little obscure. Yeah. I mean, how many people saw the invention of love? Or ever heard of it? I was proud of myself that I remembered the name of it. Yeah, and uh, so it, we're not the only ones on whom it made a uh, great impression. Uh, the other ones—I don't know if anyone else struck you, but kind of what you'd expect. Well, Raul Esparza in well, the company. We certainly saw that, and we thought he was great in company. 
there are a couple you know I quibble with, but th- that's not the point of this. Uh, whatever impresses people impresses people, right? I think we should listen more carefully now. Listen more carefully too, because I I I, I did love the invention of love. Yeah. Okay, but it's not like I remember particular moments the way this person is. Oh. Yeah. You know? Okay. So I gotta. All right. Well, gotta you, hone my skills. Yeah. Don't bit. don't beat yourself up. I mean, uh, yeah, most of these things are not very specific, and frankly, there's some questionable choices. But in any event, you weren't there. You don't know. Yeah. There's such a thing as the magic and the chemistry of the moment. Don't even start talking. Don't look at it and start talking. All right, I'm going to go into the producers, but I'm no, not going not, to. No, I'm you're not doing that. Yeah, I couldn't go hating on anybody. All right. Okay. So here's something. Here's something. You got to do some sports. So a guy named Bryson DeChambeau, who I never heard of. Uh, he's on the golf tour. He's a young guy. Um, and here's the deal. He uh, he's 26 years old, and apparently he's uh, unconventional. He's a, he was a physics major, major at SMU, uh, and he does things like uh, he soaks golf balls in Epsom salts to determine their center of gravity. He signs autographs backwards with his left hand, even though he is right-handed. It's his way of underscoring that he's a total nonconformist. Well, that's, that is what it is. But here's the latest thing that he did. During the COVID-19 pandemic, when no one was playing uh, competitive golf, he took the uh, three months uh, that he had at his disposal, and he became a bodybuilder. Uh, he was not. And as a result of uh, all this lifting that he did uh, over the 90 days, uh, he gained like 40 pounds of muscle. And he looks pretty darn big. Uh, and uh, apparently, it's resulted in him hitting a golf ball 400 yards. Now, I will just tell you that 400 yards is unheard of. It's unheard of okay. that the top hitters on the tour hit 300 yards, maybe a little bit more than 300 yards. And of course, you know, the people you know normally play golf, they hit 250 yards. But you're playing a different game if you're hitting the ball 400 yards. You know, your first shot is on the green. You're not, you miss the stroke in there, right? Or you save yeah. yourself the stroke. Yeah. And, um, in the few tournaments that have uh, been unveiled over the last couple of weeks, he's made an impact. He's been there. I mean, he's, he's suddenly he's a uh, prime competitor. Now, the rest of his game apparently doesn't quite live up to the 400 yards, <laughs> but maybe one day it but will. But if he can learn to do that, maybe well, he can learn the other stuff. Here's my question. Yeah. Why is there no before picture well, in the article? There's an after picture. But much more fun if there was before and after. I'm sure if we got yeah. on the internet, we could. Maybe no we one just, took a picture of him before. He, I don't know. Uh, Look, this. the guy who, who, who started the, uh, the idea of lifting weights and, and building yourself that way was actually Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods was a workout fanatic compared to other guys. I mean, Rory McIlroy <laughs> is is a, is you know the leader on tour. Let's say it's 160 pounds. But why? But why is this a, stronger... a surprise? Because we, I, it, even I to the little what. extent that I watch baseball. Yeah. They always have like the pinch hitter guys, yeah. you know, who come up yeah. and they're big. Yeah. And they're burly, right. and uh, they don't look like they can run, you know, all the way around uh, the bases. But they hit it so far, they don't have to, right. you know. And it's all, you know, and it, well, I, let me tell in you summer what. softball the, the, the games, same is, thing. Yeah. You've got this big chubby guy who hits it a ton, right. you know, well, etc. So is, why is this, this news? Is quite the analysis. Here's the reason, because they say, and even when in connection with the shampoo, there's a concern about injury. There's concern that if you put uh, so much uh, weight on your body and you put so much uh, 
muscle into your swing that it could actually hurt you in other ways. The, the, the torque of the swing itself, the force of the swing itself could throw your back out. Uh, they talk about in this article, the fact Tiger Woods has knee problems. Was that because he did too much weightlifting? I, 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 that it, must be my problem. It, <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> so they're concerned with the shambo. They say they think it's, it's, it's a bad thing to imitate. Right, they well, think young golfers shouldn't do it. We're looking at you, Shambo. Yeah, well... All right, see where you go. He's changing the game or not, depending on how he does. So it's nice so to see someone So last night we're sitting around trying to figure out a film to watch. Yes. And Granger says, let's watch this. And you said, what's it about? And he said, it's about a magical horse. <laughs> and you were not at all enthused. I said, uh, we're, not watching magical, down. we're not watching a magical horse movie. Uh Eventually, I was but won over. Granger persisted. Yes, Granger persisted. And you said, okay, but this is the last Magical Horse movie of the year. Exactly. <laughs> We're off Magical Horses for a year. So this is Criterion Channel, so there's a little bit of uh, credibility that goes with it. And it turns out, as Granger explained to me, it's a movie called <laughs> In, Into the West, 1992, written by Jim Sheridan. Now, Jim Sheridan's kind of a big deal. He's made some great Irish movies. This is an Irish movie. Uh, it, this was directed by Mike Newell, again, written by Sheridan. And uh, Sheridan wrote uh, My Left Foot uh, and some other The movies. Daniel Day-Lewis The movie. Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. movie, which he, he plays, uh, I forget what disease he had. It was quite a debilitating disease, but he becomes a great uh, poet at the same time. Uh, and it's a fantastic movie, and it's an unbelievable performance. But, but Jim Sheridan's the real deal. So as soon as I hear Jim Sheridan willing to give it a shot, and I hate to admit it, uh, it was pretty good. <laughs> As magical horse movies go, uh, it was about these two children. Uh, two it's Irish not children. about the story. In tough it? circumstances. But uh, there were, you know, fantastic performances by these kids. Yeah. Uh, Ellen Barkin was in it. Yes, uh, but the star was Gabriel yeah. Byrne, and Gabriel Byrne was very good. And of course. And I couldn't understand a thing he said. Uh, Gabriel Byrne? Yeah, he was playing... He was Irish. He was he's playing... A, 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 not was, only was he Irish, but he was a traveler. He was a traveler. Okay, like a gypsy. Exactly Okay, right. so it was, um, it was a you complex You couldn't understand accent, the thing he I said. Um, but uh, you don't need to. It just, was it was a good movie. And it, you know something? For those of you who have families, you can watch it with the kids. I hate to talk this way, but I will. And and the kids will kind of enjoy it, but the adults will enjoy it too. It was it was good. I think it resonates more with an adult. Yeah, I think uh, it does too. But yeah. uh, there was a lot going on in that film. Um, Into the West. Into the West, 1992. Irish We're working film. our way now that we've paid for Criterion. Oh, we're going to see every classic movie. We're going to see every movie we ever can. made. We're going to get our money's worth. Uh, the jury's out as to whether we see Perry Mason tonight. That was pretty darn dark last week. I don't know about that. I know. It's weird. All right. So we're winding near the end. There was a uh, an article. Now, this is just weird. Uh, you know, it's the New York Times. It's clearly, someone's listening to our podcast. They have an article today uh, at, on the first page of the book section about uh, Charles Portis, in particular about his novel, True Grit. Now, three months ago, we were on to True Grit. Now, I just said to you, I've been reading about, you know, I think I'm just going to read True Grit. It's really good. And you looked at me like, why are we talking about that? And uh, that's not exactly how it yeah, went. You said, I'm reading it, it's yeah. fantastic. It's fantastic. And I said, How could that be? Yeah, that's very similar, I think. Yeah. And then, uh, as it happened a few weeks later, Portis died by coincidence, so we, we said something else about it. But and apparently, the Times listened and it takes them months to put these things together, and they got Donna <laughs> Tart 
uh, the novelist to write an appreciation of uh, Charles Portis. Uh, and it turns out she had corresponded with him. She's from Mississippi. He's from Arkansas. And uh, she, you know, says, and I happen to agree with her, he's a fantastic writer and True Grit is is one of those things that you just want to read out loud. As a matter of fact, this will interest you. She did the audible version of True Grit. She oh, read she it. did? She read it. it really? Was unbelievably rare. It's one author, and she's well-known. What was the name of that? Uh, I forget her, her book, her very famous book about the bird. Um, is it called The Nightingale? The Nightingale. Yeah, something like that. Yes. Uh, well, it's about the painting. Yes. It's very popular. Yes, very popular. And she read his book. And she, that's why she called him. She, the Goldfinch? Yeah, that's exactly right. She called him She called him to see if he would agree to her doing the audible version of it. And she had a passage prepared and she was going to read to him. Mm-hmm. And he just chats her up. And he says, she says, uh, uh, do you want to hear me read? And he says, no, no, you'll make a fine Maddie. I got that. You're, you're great. That's fine. <laughs> um, so here's, I'll just read you quickly what uh, Torres says that I think is, is true. She says, as for the novels of uh, Portis, they've gotten me through times of bleakness and uncertainty from fifth grade to now and are a never-ending source of amazement, gratitude, and joy. Uh, and then she talks a great bit about his great strength in getting American vernacular right and getting people from Arkansas and that part of the country perfectly. Uh, and then goes back to Portis uh, and what a great author he was. There was no meanness in him. He understood and conveyed the grain of America in ways that may prove valuable in future to historians trying to understand what was decent about us as a nation. And I can't help thinking that the novels he's left us with will continue to provide refuge and comfort for readers, perhaps in times even darker than our own. Um, it's a real appreciation, and I agree with that. I mean, I, she has him right there as one of the great American novelists, and uh, I wouldn't argue with that. Uh, and finally, and I, I, I told you I'm going to spring a surprise on you, and it's from New York Magazine. We never talk about New York Magazine. Although, it has some good information, but it has terrible articles. Yes, it does. So they have a, a feature about uh, people living together during the pandemic and learning about something about their partner that they didn't know before. And here's an article titled, You Spent Five Years Hiding That You Can Actually Cook. And it's it's an article, it's a back and forth, it's a dialogue between a couple named Michael and Keisha Rovner. And they're talking with each other. And she says his cooking was the main reason I agreed to marry him. And he said he understood that, you know, she didn't know anything about cooking. She didn't have any pots or pans. And that was fine with him. Uh, and so Michael says, there have been so many times over the past five years where she begged me to make her a snack. She'd say, you know, I'm useless in the kitchen. I throw something simple together. Uh, and she would react like I was Gordon Ramsay. So Keisha says, yes, before quarantine, my days at work ended at eight or nine, sometimes later. And I was too tired to go about doing any cooking. And he didn't know I could cook. So <laughs> Michael says, suddenly a week into quarantine, she whips up homemade mac and cheese without a recipe. It was like witnessing someone pretend to need a wheelchair and then get up and do laps around the track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And uh, she says, yeah, I couldn't hold out anymore. And now my secret's out, but I feel good that I let him know. So here's my question to you. What would, how would you react if suddenly, out of the clear blue, we walked into the kitchen and I started whipping something up? Because uh, it turns out that after years of uh, 
not really asserting myself in the kitchen, it turns out that I could—I was really an expert chef. How would you react to that? Is this, uh, does this have anything to do with dinner tonight? No. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> sadly, sadly, it doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with dinner tonight. No, well, that would be, you know, kind of a game changer. <laughs> oh, really? It's, really? Yeah, because I assume, you know, my whole value to you was really... Being able to put dinner on the plate. Oh, really? No, that's not. Isn't that how it works? No, not exactly. Not exactly. Well, look, there's no danger of that. But can you imagine this couple that they spend years together and suddenly she says, okay, enough of this. And the charade is over and she goes into the kitchen. I think you're going to find out that in actuality, I can't cook. (laughs) You think so? You think so? That's the big secret. Well, so now I've been doing all the cooking, but actually, I can't cook. Really? Yeah. No, it's not true. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. Okay, so I'm looking forward to dinner tonight, uh, and uh, <laughs> that uh, that wraps it up. That yeah. wraps it up. All right. So this is Tamson Granger and Dan Abuha with Tamson and Dan reading the paper, and we'll see you again next week. I hope.